Warning. You're about to enter the arena and join the battle to save America with your host, Sean Parnell. Welcome to Battleground Live, everybody. It is Thursday, and oh boy, so much going on. I can't wait to talk to you about it. I was just watching a video of Donald Trump down at the southern border, and what I was amazed by, I have to admit, not surprised, but just amazed. It, you know, everybody when they visit the border, GOP senators, uh, House members, any politician, really, they go down there looking like they're about to go on a survival mission or some African safari. They're wearing tactical gear that looks like they they bought it at a out of a military surplus store, and they still have creases in the pants, and they look they look very out of place standing next to border patrol agents or police officers who patrol the border on the regular who actually look good in their tactical gear. So I was I have to admit I was wondering what Trump would wear down to the border and sure enough he did not disappoint. He was rocking a full-blown suit while everybody around him was trying to look like they were going out on on a mission in sub-Saharan Africa. Donald Trump was still rocking his blue suit with the red tie which just got to love that guy. Uh, so much to talk about. Another mouth-breathing communist judge booted Trump from the ballot and yet another state. Very, very important and new developments in the fight to secure our elections here in this country, especially as we approach 2024. Uh, also, the fact that Republicans and Democrats used to feel very differently about our elections. And of course, Hunter Biden on Capitol Hill, that and so much more. We've got an hour. So, okay. This mouth-breathing communist judge from Illinois kicked President Trump off the ballot. I'm starting to think that we might have a radical Democrat judge problem in this country. And I have long said that Democrat judges are an existential threat to this country because they are. I'll reiterate that the left puts hardliners and appoints hardliners as judges people that worship at the altar of progressive politics. They leave the constitution at home. They don't care about it. They don't care about laws or norms or evidence. If there is any sort of case, a landmark political case that they can use to advance the progressive football down the field, rest assured, they are coming down on the side with the radical left every single time. The right, by contrast, appoints, you know, right-leaning jurists or lawyers who tend to leave their politics at home. So again, at any given moment, a Republican will cross the aisle and rule with a Democrat, but very, very rarely, again, on landmark political decisions, you ever see the left doing the same. And I think this is why you see here in this country so many ballot challenges to President Trump. And, and I'm going to show this up on the screen just so you all can see it. What I'm showing you is, is uh, uh, states with suits to bar President Trump from the ballot. And they're all color-coded from blue meaning dismissed, green meaning appeal, red meaning disqualified. I mean, whatever. The fact is Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and then 
I mean, there are like 30 states on here, folks. And what's so concerning to me is that the left in this country, while simultaneously screaming about the disenfranchisement of voters, and I know this because I challenged the 2020 election, I've had two cases at the United States Supreme Court, multiple cases at the Commonwealth Court here in Pennsylvania, a few different cases up at the Democrat-controlled Pennsylvania Supreme Court, all on election integrity. And when I did that, the left literally came to my house. They protested. They screamed. They called. They threatened my attorneys, one of which actually had to remove himself from the case because of those threats. And, And every single news article out there, what did you hear? What did you hear, folks? Oh, my gosh. Sean Parnell and his radical right-wing counterparts are threatening to disenfranchise millions of Pennsylvania voters. Absolutely ridiculous. Did you like that voice there? Absolutely ridiculous. But now, here we have a scenario where you have Democrats in states in, in 30 states across the country that are trying to kick President Trump off the ballot. We must protect democracy by preventing people from voting for who they want. <laughs> That's basically their logic. But you see the hypocrisy there, because of course you do. And I stumbled across this NBC article today because the Democrats are always a, ahead of the curve. You know, I've said for a long time that the difference between Republicans and Democrats as a political party and as it pertains to campaigns is Republicans focused almost exclusively on running a good campaign. And so that means knocking doors, sending out mailers, doing debates on stage with their opponents, um, spending a lot of money to get up on television. The Democrats now, they focus on elections. That's where they're focused. And that's why in 2022, you had a turnip brain like Fetterman be able to win in a primary in Pennsylvania, won every county in the primary, and then win in a general election. And then not only that, this is why he won. He was able to bank over a half a million mail-in votes in the early vote period while he hit and recovered from a stroke. Democrats won that race because they were focused while Republicans were spending tens of millions of dollars on traditional campaign style, like measuring their campaign using traditional metrics, dollars raised, doors, knocks, mailers sent. The Democrats were just chasing down ballots, laser focused on that election. In 2020 is another good example of this, where even at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court level, they worked very, very, very hard to kick the Green Party candidate off the ballot only at the presidential level while simultaneously keeping the Libertarian candidate on the ballot. Now, the margin in 2020, even with all of the fraud and and the first time rolling out mail-in ballots, a -a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, COVID, uh, lockdowns, I mean, a week-to-count ballots, even with all that, the margin in Pennsylvania was only 80,000, razor-thin margin. And typically, let me explain this to you. You got Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party. Typically, Libertarian takes away from the Republican candidate. Green Party takes away from the the Democrat. And 
they tend to balance each other out. But by removing the libertarian, by, by removing the Green Party candidate from the ballot and leaving the libertarian candidate on the ballot, even the courts, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court set the tone at the highest level on the ballot itself to rig it against Trump. So you see all, how all this goes. Democrats don't really care about democracy. And I was looking at what the Democrats were doing today, just trying to get a sense, focusing in my efforts on swing states, of course, at, at first. But what jumped right out at me this morning was this article right on, on NBC. Headline, Pennsylvania governor unveils election security task force to mitigate threats to the 2024 vote. Now, keep in mind, the governor in Pennsylvania is Poindexter Josh Shapiro, geeky Josh Shapiro. And of course, the article and the actual tweet itself says, Democrat governor of Pennsylvania will announce a new election security task force Thursday that will be put in place well, that will put in place measures that officials will keep officials hope will keep the 2024 vote in the battleground state free from interference and misinformation. Of course, when we hear misinformation, what do we hear? <laughs> we know it means that they're protecting the narrative and not the truth and that this task force is going to be laser focused on disenfranchising Republicans and preventing people from standing up and saying, wait a second, there are problems in our elections. Not to my, Never mind the fact that the guy who is running this that was, was an attorney general during 2020, and he said this. Let me put it up on the screen here. This is Josh Shapiro on October 31st, 2020. Now, again, at the time, this he was the attorney general, the top cop in Pennsylvania. On October 31st, 2020 was three days before the election, four days before the election. He says, if all the votes are added up in Pennsylvania, Trump is going to lose. That's why he's working overtime to subtract as many votes as possible from this process. For the record, he's 0-6 against us in court. We've protected voting rights. Now, ignore the noise. Vote. That seems like a pretty damn sure. He seems pretty damn sure three days, four days before an election, doesn't he? Again, at the time, this guy was attorney general. Now he's the governor. You read it again. If all the votes are added up in Pennsylvania, Trump is going to lose. If all the votes are added up in Pennsylvania, Trump is going to lose. How does he know that? He knows it because they've done everything that they can at every level to rig the process. And now they're trying to do it again. And so from this NBC article, it says, talking about this election security task force, they include the U.S. Attorney's Office for the state's three federal districts, the state attorney general's office, commissioners and election directors across many of the state's 67 counties, the state and federal homeland security departments, the state police, the state official information technology and emergency management branches, uh, and the Pennsylvania National Guard. Al Schmidt, who is a Republican, Republican Secretary of State, oh, by the way, happened to be a Republican chair of elections out in the Philadelphia area. And we all know how what a disaster Philadelphia was in not just 2020, but almost every single election. So just because he has an R next to his name doesn't mean he's going to be good for us, we the people. 
doesn't exactly give you a warm and fuzzy that he's presiding over Philadelphia and multiple people since 2019, including a former member of Congress, have been charged with voter fraud, literally, from Philadelphia. But the Election Security Task Force has included lawsuits or uh, the efforts to thwart the election, I should say, have included lawsuits seeking to throw out huge numbers of absentee ballots, efforts by Trump allies to audit 2020 ballots and to access ballots, as well as voting and elections equipment. They they have also involved election officials in some counties who have expressed skepticism about Trump's loss to Biden in 2020, who have at least initially refused in some cases to certify their county's election results. Now, this is like the last paragraph in this article, and it's it's arguably the most important one. The task force won't be equipped to deal with all such potential issues. For example, the slow counting of ballots in Pennsylvania in 2020, which drew numerous lawsuits and conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories from Trump and his allies is a problem that lawmakers in the divided legislature still haven't addressed. So of course, that's the most important part. And I responded to Josh Shapiro on X today very publicly. And I said, I hope the election security task force will perform 24 hours a day, seven days a week surveillance of drop boxes, along with rigorous voter ID requirements, perhaps even a robust signature verification process. Let's also require that all mail-in ballots be counted before the in-person vote is tabulated. All of this, folks, in any serious election integrity or election security task force, all of this would be included. If it's not, then we know, and we'll know in a couple of ways. I mean, I think we all know the answer to this question. But if it's not included, this is just another way for Democrats to rig the process in their favor. And just so we're clear, when I say let's require that mail-in ballots be counted before the in-person vote is tabulated, the tale as old as time. It's what the Democrats do. They wait for the in-person election day vote to happen. They identify that well. What they do is they wait for Democrat and Republican same day vote or uh, election day vote to happen. They compare the margin between the two, and then they start counting mail in ballots over the course of the week. And if they come up short and can't surpass that margin, they backfill it with mail in ballots. With oh, by the way, can't be verified. No signature verification. You got drop boxes everywhere. No postmark requirement. I mean that's the game, folks. And so to Republicans, and not just in Pennsylvania, this goes for Republicans in every swing state. If you are in a Republican county controlled by Republican election officials, under no circumstances should you report your election day vote until the mail-in ballots are counted. No one, no county should report election day voting until mail-in votes are done. Done, banked, stamped, approved, over with. That way, Democrats can't pull these tricks. That's a real simple way to fix this issue. But Democrats don't because they want to cheat. And there's so much we've got to get to, and I don't want to belabor the point on, on elections. You all know where I stand on this stuff, but i got to talk about some of this stuff. It's absolutely crazy. But some very unusual suspects agreed with everything that I was saying 
uh, to you right now about elections. They all, I mean, so many, I mean, even people that you probably despise today, like Mitch McConnell. Listen to this. Mr. President, it's election day in Kentucky. And I suspect on this election day, as on many election days over the last hundred years or so, in some areas of my state, people are attempting to buy votes, sell votes, intimidate voters, and in general, distort the election process. Earlier in my life, I uh, taught uh, on a part-time basis a course called American Political Parties and Elections. And we talked about, uh, with the students, uh, the election fraud problems in some areas of this country. It is clearly not a problem everywhere. But in certain areas of our country, particularly rural one-party areas in the South, and in certain big cities in the Midwest and in the North, again, places where one party tends to dominate, this is an ongoing problem. Some have even felt that it might have determined the outcome of the presidential election in 1960 between Nixon and Kennedy. It was much written and said about election fraud in, in Chicago that might well have turned Illinois uh, in Kennedy's direction rather than in Nixon's. I might say I've had my own experience as an election challenger, I recall, 20 years ago in 1967 in a governor's race in Kentucky, uh, being dispatched as a challenger uh, to a one-party precinct, being threatened with physical harm, uh, watching voters being intimidated and pushed around. It's a problem that has persisted in my state. I can recall in 1981, Mr. President, when I was running for re I mean... Unbelievable, right? That is, of course, Mitch McConnell. And that ties into the news cycle, of course, because Mitch McConnell is now stepping down. But it wasn't just Mitch McConnell who used to see things the way that all of us did. And by the way, it wasn't just Republicans. It was also Democrats that used to feel this way about elections and not just elections, voting machines. Listen. All the voting machines, every secretary of state needs to be, you know, assisted in making sure that they are not being uh, hacked and, and attacked. I continue to think that our voting machines are too vulnerable. For researchers have repeatedly de demonstrated that ballot recording machines and other voting systems are susceptible to tempering. Even hackers with limited prior knowledge, tools and resources are able to breach voting machines in a matter of minutes. In 2018, electronic voting machines in Georgia and Texas deleted votes for certain candidates or switched votes from one candidate to another. The biggest seller of voting machines is doing something that violates Cybersecurity 101, directing that you install remote access software, which would make a machine like that, you know, a magnet for fraudsters and hackers. These voting machines can be hacked quite easily. You could easily hack into them. It makes it seem like all these states are doing different things, but in fact, three companies are controlling this. It is the individual voting machines that some pose, that pose some of the greatest risk. There are a lot of states that are dealing with antiquated machines. Right. Which are vulnerable to being hacked. Workers were able to easily hack into an electronic voting machine. It was possible to switch votes. Forty three percent of American voters use voting machines that researchers have found have serious security flaws, including back doors. We know how vulnerable now our systems were. We know I know that hackathon that took place last year where virtually every machine was broken into fairly quickly. I actually held a demonstration for my colleagues 
here at the Capitol um, where we. So you get the gist, right? Uh, these people are all disingenuous hacks or do you or maybe just Washington, D.C. is so corrupt that it perverts the soul. It twists the soul. Or maybe these people are bought and paid for by special interests. But clearly something has changed. What is it? Because, folks, these people would have you believe that because I ask questions and because you ask questions about elections, common sense questions, they would have you believe that we're all crazy conspiracy theorists. But that couldn't be further from the truth. We're asking the same questions that they're asking. Democrats, Republicans, Mitch McConnell back in the 1980s, for goodness sake, thought the same as we do now. What changed? Why? Why did they change their perspective? Is there anybody out there in the media willing to ask these people that very question? And I got to believe that you'll have plenty of time speaking to the media, you'll have plenty of time to ask McConnell that question because he's not going to be the minority leader in the Senate much longer. Now, I will admit, I was a little bit excited when I heard that that Mitch McConnell was stepping down because I do believe it's time for new leadership in the Senate, younger leadership in the Senate, somebody who puts America first. And I mean that, folks. That's not just a catchphrase to me. This country is suffering from, from some very serious existential pathologies. And I mean, uh, what I mean by that, put, put just bottom line up front, is I don't believe that this country will survive another four years of Joe Biden. The issues that we face here at home domestically could sink this ship. And right now, this country desperately needs leaders that are willing to stand up, reform the system, and God forbid, put we the people before anybody else. You know, this whole issue with the Ukraine is a, is a perfect example. And I'm supposed to get to this later, if, if especially if we have time. But the idea that we should be sending tax dollars to Ukraine and meddle in another country while Americans are languishing and struggling to put food on the table for their families here at home just doesn't feel right to me. And any politicians that's willing to send our hard-earned tax dollars to Ukraine to drag out a war, and a war that will, as long the longer it drags on, the more likely it is that Americans find themselves on the battlefield keeping the peace. I just can't get behind any politician that believes that. I just, I just can't. If you believe that this country is not going to survive another four years of Joe Biden, then how could anyone possibly support meddling in a country somewhere else? You've got to take care of your house. You've got to get your own house in order before you take care of somebody else's, right? Of course you do. So the real question is, if we're looking forward, which we all should be doing, and that's really what the show is all about, is you have to ask yourself, who is going to replace Mitch McConnell? That's the million-dollar question. And should we be optimistic about that replacement? I have to say, folks, 
I might have a sliver of hope, but I am 99% negative on this, and I'll tell you why. Right now, there are three people lined up to replace Mitch McConnell, or at least have whispered about running. One is out, said that they're going to, one is definitely running for sure. That's what I mean by out. But right now, it's Thune, Cornyn, and Barrasso. Cornyn has come out and said that he's definitely going to run for leadership. Thune and Barrasso have as well. And there might be one more person getting in. I've heard rumblings that there might be one more person. I hope, if I'm a betting man, I think that that person will be Rick Scott. And of the four people that I just mentioned, it it would be a major win for all of us if the Senate Minority Leader was Rick Scott. But I just don't think it's going to happen. Do you know why? Because in order to be in leadership in in any chamber of government, House of Representatives or Senate, you have to meet two very clear criteria. And I'll tell you that in a second. But before I do, I want to ask, I want to ask you, do you remember the story about Carrie Lake from a month, a couple months ago, or maybe it was a month ago, where she talked about somebody, some rich Republican donor from the Northeast was going to pay her a large sum of money? to stay out of the Senate primary. Do y'all remember that? I'm sure you do. And I told you that that is far more common than you think. And the reason why that stuff happens, you get these super, super mega wealthy people that invest tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on either side of the aisle to, to shift policy and shape shape what our republic looks like. And to them, it's less about Democrat-Republican and far more important to them is control. Can someone be controlled? Carrie Lake was made that offer because by and large, she is seen as somebody that cannot be controlled, which is ultimately a threat to the uniparty's agenda. President Trump is also somebody who is seen as uncontrollable. I think we all know that. I think his staff knows that. I think his children know that. <clears throat> but you have to meet two very important criteria if you're going to be a leader, especially in the Senate. The first is you have to be controllable. Are you going to rock the boat? Are you going to be a team player? Listen, folks, having run for Senate, and the House back-to-back, -back, I have met all the key players in the Senate, from Mitch McConnell on down. Even had a meeting with Mitch McConnell where he didn't say much, but his staff tells me that I'm the first person to make him laugh in like 10 years. And he was like, oh, ho, 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 ho. I'm just saying, I, I've been there. I've talked to these people. Everywhere I went, I swear to you, everywhere I went, I heard the phrase, oh, are you going to be a team player? Very important to us if you're that you be a team player. Very important that we know that we're all on the same team. Oh, only 50 of us here in the Senate can't can't handle any dissent. Are you a team player? In other words, basically reading between the lines or listening between their lines or saying, like, if you want our support during this run for office in a race in Pennsylvania where you're gonna need likely 300 million dollars, you better do what we say.
That's check one. The second thing is you've got to be a fundraising behemoth and no, not just like a decent fundraiser. You have to be an absolute beast mode level fundraiser. And here's the crux of the second point I'm trying to make. In order to get access to people who write those big checks, the very same people who are trying to bribe Carrie Lake out of the Senate race, in order to get access to those people, you have to meet all the criteria of point one. So you see how this system in leadership is really one big self-licking ice cream cone. Do you see why it's so difficult, if not impossible, to get a like, an outsider, a reformer, someone like, say, Josh Hawley in leadership? Well, first of all, Josh Hawley, I think, I think was my first endorsement in the United States Senate when I ran for Senate, gotten a, a few opportunities to talk to him. He's the real deal. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. And and not only because he was, he was, I just got a good vibe from him and, you know, he, he was a good person, true to his word, all that stuff matters. But the reason why I think he's the real deal is because the establishment hates him. That's how, that's how you know you're over the target, right? That's how you know you're being a reformer. Because these people, Democrat, Republican, and their billionaire influencers, they want the status quo. They don't want change. They want you to be a team player. And so guys like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and some of these other for J.D. Vance, these people... I certainly don't want to speak for them, but I can pretty well tell you that they don't want to be in Senate leadership. And second of all, they don't meet the criteria and they never will. They can't be controlled. They are going to rock the boat. And because they're not seen as team players, they'll never get access to the big dollar people who write the massive checks. And listen, folks, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. There is a very, very big difference between leadership in the Senate and just regular boots on the ground senators. Leadership, they wield, and the House of Representatives too, Speaker of the House is the same way. But again, it's all it's all ratcheted up to 10 in the Senate because there's only a hundred of them, right? So each senator is imbued with more authority. Their vote matters more, especially when there's a razor-thin margin, a highly divided Senate like there is now. There's just fewer of them. So it everything is just magnified in the Senate. But if you're in leadership, you have the exclusive power over what bills get voted on, period. I mean, I told you about H.R. 2 the solution to our border that passed out of the House of Representatives back in May, almost 300 days ago. We could have had a secure border for eight months if the Senate actually voted on that bill. But you know what Chuck Schumer did with it? As the Senate Majority Leader, he left it on his desk, and it's been there for almost 300 days collecting dust. Leadership has enormous power. And so if you're, this is also a reason why many of these outsiders have trouble getting legislation passed, because if you piss the wrong people off at the top, your bills ain't getting voted on. And so the second part about leadership that really separates them from the pack is they just control 
enormous, enormous sums of money. And I mean it, folks. It, the Senate Leadership Fund is what Mitch McConnell controls. The, the, the leadership in either party controls these funds. PACs, lobbying power, K Street people, you name it. They, they all donations th- flow through McConnell and SLF. SLF means Senate Leadership Fund. Senate Leadership Fund augments a Senate candidate's fundraising power. So in other words, if a race is going to cost $300 million and you're a candidate, you better raise serious sums of money because if you don't, the Senate Leadership Fund isn't going to help get you across the goal line and spend in your race. Senate Leadership Fund is similar to the House of Representatives, CLF, or Congressional Leadership Fund. They all, they're like the cavalry in some of these races, right? Where a candidate busts their ass to fundraise for a year and they run out of money, Senate Leadership Fund should be there in a perfect world to help that candidate get across the goal line. Same is true in the House of Representatives. So if leadership doesn't like you as a candidate and leadership doesn't like you as an incumbent, how likely do you think it will be that Senate Leadership Fund or Congressional Leadership Fund is there for you when you need the most? And so, folks, I'm telling you this because this is why it is so difficult, damn near impossible, to get a true reformer in the House of Representatives, not less than the House of Representatives. It requires far less money, but primarily in the Senate. And this is why I have little faith that the the, the next leader is going to be a reformer. Uh, and then it leads us to the question of why this is another million dollar question. I think I have an answer to it, but why won't McConnell resign his leadership leadership position now? And I mean, step down now. Let Republicans elect somebody new, appoint somebody new, vote on somebody new. Do it now. The reason why McConnell won't is he doesn't want to discard his power during a critical election. You remember, McConnell didn't fight the 2020 election at all. I mean, he did nothing. McConnell and Trump don't like each other. I mean, listen, McConnell was also responsible for ensuring that three Supreme Court justices in four years got appointed to the Supreme Court. So, like, he's got a pretty decent record on conservative judges, but he's also responsible for the abomination of that Lankford bill that is supposed to be a borders bill, but it's not. It's an open borders bill that primarily funds Ukraine. I mean, He's no friend of of America first. And it's curious to me that he doesn't want to relinquish that power and relinquish that money in the lead up to 2024, because if you put yourself in his shoes, he probably sees a portion of his legacy is making sure as many establishment candidates get elected as humanly possible. And what I mean by that are people who reject populism, reject Trumpism, reject America first politics. That's, that's, I think that's why. He wants to have his imprint on the Senate. I think that's the only reason why. Ultimately, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room there for accountability either. I mean, Mitch McConnell can basically do what he wants for these last eight months, take as many bad votes as he wants, and it does not matter to him, to his voters. And that might matter a lot to America in a Senate that's divided 50-50, one, even one vote 
I mean, I know that Democrats have a majority with Cackle and Kamala, but it's razor, razor thin. You end up getting a Mitch McConnell voting with you in these last eight months. Real bad things could happen to this country real quick if he turns, which, hey, look, I don't know if he will, but I'm just saying. Hard to hold somebody accountable who's not not going to, who's who's just sitting around in the Senate for eight months waiting to retire, right? But my main issue with so many of, of the people that I just met is that they're just, folks, they're just not fighters. They're just not. I've said it before and I'll say it again, that it's critically important that Republicans, candidates, and incumbents understand what time it is, that the Democrats are hell-bent on destroying this country. They hate America. They have for the last decade. If you're a Republican that is running for office like you're running for a high school debate team or student council, you're not suited for the times. And so many Republicans in the Senate, I mean, really, there are only about nine reformers in the Senate. And by and large, they're ostracized by the 40 establishment senators who are there. Those nine are real fighters. The other 40, they don't say a whole lot and they kind of go with the flow. And the reason why that is so important is because the Democrats are upping the ante all the time. I mean, after 2020, I thought anything was possible. I mean, with the COVID lockdowns, the 2020 election, all that stuff. But the Democrats, but trying to keep Trump off the ballot, they've escalated things significantly. And we need fighters more than ever. And this is why. Listen to this. Joining us now, professor of political science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, Tom Schaller, and journalist and opinion writer Paul Waldman. Their new book out tomorrow is entitled White Rural Rage, the Threat to American Democracy. And Tom, we'll start with you. Uh, why are white rural voters a threat to democracy at this point? You would think, as we pointed out, looking at Joe Biden's background and Donald Trump's, that, that the opposite would be true. I mean, we lay out the fourfold interconnected threat that white rural voters pose to the country. First of all, and we show 30 polls and national studies to demonstrate this. So we provide the receipts in Chapter 6. They're the most racist xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay geodemographic group in the country. Second, they're the most conspiracist group. QAnon support and subscribers, election denialism, COVID denialism and scientific skepticism, Obama birtherism. Third, anti-democratic sentiments. They don't believe in an independent press, free speech. They're most likely to say the president should be able to act unilaterally without any checks from Congress or the courts or the bureaucracy. They're also the most strongly white nationalist and white Christian nationalist. And fourth, they are most likely to excuse or justify violence as an acceptable alternative to peaceful public discourse. So you mentioned a lot of negative factors yeah. about, about this. So these people absolutely hate you. The fact that that's allowed, I mean, I mean, free speech, right? But it's amazing to me that not only is that allowed, that it's, it's celebrated. There's a, a significant portion of this country on the left that hate us that 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 have dreams about putting us in a gulag this is not a joke look at what these look how authoritarian these these neo-fascist democrats have become in just four years it's unbelievable how much the overton window has shifted during that time
And again, this is like just they the view talking about jailing Republicans just today. Listen. Well, the Supreme Court won't hear oral arguments until the end of April. Now, I just, you know, just let's look at a scenario where the Supreme Court says, yes, he has that. He has all those rights. He is immune from everything. You know what Joe Biden could do since he is presently president? What? Whoa. (laughs) He could throw every Republican in jail. Yeah, I yeah. mean he could. I mean no, 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 no. This is not because a good thing. Totally because you have totally, totally he can yeah. go. He, what this means is it's uh-huh. he could do anything. Yeah, he could dismiss everybody's debt. Yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of great stuff that could happen. But let's let's really look at what this means. Yeah. So if, that so they're basically mm? kicking the can down the road, though they they're not taking up this case immediately. Right. So what's right. their motivation then? If they if we all know that we they can't do what you just said because right. of the extreme power that a president would have, right. what is their p- motivation for not doing it right away? Well, unfortunately, some people are saying the motivation <coughs> is that there are certain conservative justices that have been appointed by Trump that want to help him. And because we know the end result is if this case is not resolved by the time uh, of the election, and he, God forbid, becomes the president of the United States. Poo poo. The the Justice Department policy is that you cannot indict nor put on trial a sitting president, right? And so, it's ridiculous, right? The fact that they think that this is that these are rigorously thought out policy positions is unbelievably concerning. I'm going to show you now how the Democrats are opening up a new front in their war against the United States Supreme Court. And buckle up, folks, because the Democrats are about to take things to the next level. And of course, you know, the Supreme Court agreed to take up the Trump immunity case on what they call a petition for certiori or cert for short. I've had the Supreme Court reject election integrity cases from me. Uh, and where I've asked for them to take a, a case on certiori or cert, and they typically come back, sheet of paper, one sentence, your petition for, for certiori has been denied. So it's they oftentimes don't give a whole lot of explanation as to why they're doing something. With this, they gave a full paragraph uh, uh, explanation of why they're taking up the Trump case. And it's it's actually kind of amazing. They were very clear and communicating what portions of this case they want argued. And I'll just just read it to you. It says, the application for a stay presented to the chief justice is referred by him to the court. The, The special counsel's request to treat the stay application as a petition for a writ of certiori is granted. And that petition is granted, limited, limited to the following question. And this is very important. Whether and if so, and to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve uh, official acts during his tenure in office? Without expressing a view on the merits, this court directs the Court of Appeals to continue withholding withholding issuance of the mandate until sending down the judgment of this court. The application for a stay is dismissed as moot. This is a big deal, and it has the left freaking out. And I'm going to explain their game plan here in a second, but do you know why 
the Supreme, why the left is freaking out like this in the Supreme Court. It's the only court in the country that can't really be bought. There, the justices are appointed by Democrat, Republican president, and they have been since the founding of our country. All across this country, Soros has been working hard behind the scenes in races where judges actually campaign and have to raise money. He's been working very, very, very hard at buying places on the bench in swing states all around the country. Pennsylvania, critical swing state of Pennsylvania, the reason why Republicans often aren't successful on their election integrity cases here is because in 2020, it was a 5-2 Democrat supermajority on that court. Five Democrats, two Republicans, largely perceived to be the most radical court in the country. Three of those justices were swept into power with over a million dollars of George Soros money apiece. The same is true for the, the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice that won in the 2023 cycle, I think it was. So in places where George Soros can flex his financial might and buy judicial seats, he does. And what it effectively acts as when Republicans have control of a legislature and there's a Republican governor, often things won't get by the court. When there's a Democrat-controlled legislature or a Democrat governor in a, in a given state, the Supreme Court in that state acts as a backstop to the governor. It's happened in Pennsylvania over and over and over again. And again, it doesn't matter what the issue is. If it's a political landmark, politically charged type of case, they are 100% going to rule with the radical left. and so. The only court in the country that the left can't buy or control, really, is the Supreme Court. And they're panicking now because they're going to hear arguments on the Trump immunity case, and they don't want that to happen. So what they're effectively doing is they are attacking and bullying the Supreme Court, and they do this all the time. I'll explain why in a second. But listen to Chris Hayes on MSNBC just going off like a total whack job. I want to be crystal clear here about the import and significance of today's news, because I think a lot of the reporting has missed this. What happened today? This one-page order looks anodyne, right? It is an unmistakable sign from the MAGA majority of the Trump-created court that they are with him that they are going to use their power to make sure he does not face trial in an election year for attempting to end American democracy. Until today, it could have gone either way. It was genuinely unclear whether they were going to give him what he wanted, whether they were going to put their shoulder to the wheel on Donald Trump's behalf. Everyone has always understood the substance of his legal claim here is meritless. It lost to the district court level. It lost unanimously in the appellate court. Three judges, one of whom is a Republican appointee. It is bad law under the Supreme Court's own precedent and jurisprudence. The point was never to win on the merits. The point was to make a time-consuming Hail Mary pass to attempt Ugh, I, I can't, I can't even, sometimes I wonder, do these people really believe that? Or do they have some crazy producer in a, in, in a control room somewhere writing these insane monologues? 
But with Chris Hayes, he actually believes it. L- listen to <laughs> listen to him on Colbert shortly after this. Yeah. American voters actually deserve the knowledge in either direction. If the man is acquitted, if he's found not guilty of an incredibly grave crime, American voters deserve to know that as well. One way or the other, the American public is owed as a fundamental public interest, as a democratic self-interest to know whether in a court of law judged by a jury of his peers under full constitutional due process, the man is guilty or not of the gravest political crime of any man in history since the Civil War. But I want to just... He said that in his last appearance, too. I just cut it off because, I, again, my IQ was diminishing in real time listening to him. He said, oh, Donald Trump is the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War. I, I mean, these people, folks, they live in the same country as us. His vote cancels out mine. I mean, it's crazy. These people are insane conspiracy theorists. And as I always say... Beware of very, very stupid people with huge platforms. And listen, listen, listen to MSNBC go on and gaslight you about the Supreme Court. Again, you're going to hear lots of lies about this stuff. But do you believe on the merits the Supreme Court made the right decision here to hear the arguments? I don't. Um, I think that this is such a frivolous argument. Uh, this is a case where even if you thought there might be some circumstance where a president could be immune with respect to certain actions that he takes within his or her official capacity. This is surely not the case. Uh, As Judge Ludig has said and actually submitted a brief, when you're dealing with um, the crimes that are alleged here, which is illegally staying in office, that that is an absolute violation of the Constitution. Here's the thing, folks, and this is why this is a lie. It's sinister. It's gaslighting. Ordinary Americans probably aren't tracking this like we all are. Trump is not charged with illegally trying to stay in office, even though the election was rigged against him because, of course, it was. Every day that goes by, we learn more about it. But it's he was he left office on time. Despite all of these terrible things being done to him, he left on time. And then there's this other guy, this white hair, white haired fat Albert. I, I mean, like, listen to this insane person. Then the appeals court gives a bulletproof ruling, as Dahlia says, and they still decide to take it up. What it says is that they are cor- corrupted political actors who act in bad faith. The reason why people like Mark and people like Dahlia seem to have a crystal ball is because they're real, because they're realists, and they understand the court for what it is. And at some point, people in the media, people at home, and people sitting in the White House have to stop pretending that the Supreme Court is some kind of benign, trying-to-do-its-best institution and start to realize that there are six Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans on the Supreme Court who view it as their job to help the Republican Party. And until we do something about that, until we take away that power, until we draw the line on them there, they will continue to do this. They will help Trump. They will take away abortion rights. They will end affirmative action. They will liberalize gun rights. They will do all of it until we stop them. And somebody, somebody needs to start listening in the higher echelons of the Democratic Party because we will keep 
losing every day we allow these six Republicans in robes to rule over all of us. <laughs> what a total psycho. Not, never mind the fact that he completely glosses over Republican Supreme Court justices side with liberals all the time. Much to my chagrin, it drives me crazy. I wish Republican judges were more like the left, recognizing the time that we're in. But alas, Republicans play by the rules. But here's the real reason why they're doing this. They're trying to bully the court and shape public perception in the lead up to this decision. The way that they let this unfold I mean, there's a million reasons why, but the bottom line is the American people are going to get to vote for the person that they want in a trial on this will likely not even happen until well after Election Day. And the left, one of the themes of this show was is all about disenfranchising voters, manipulating democracy and getting to choose who you get to vote for. I mean, of course, because they're all disgusting fascists. And they're going to ratchet up their attacks, folks, because look at this. This is what the Electoral College map looks like right now using the latest Bloomberg poll. Just came out. As you can see, there is a lot of red on that map. In the swing set in Nevada, they have that flipping red. And this is based on the latest poll. Arizona, red. Florida, red. Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, all red. Trump electoral votes 312, Biden electoral votes 221. That is why they are doing what they're doing. And they're petrified of what the Supreme Court might rule because they can't control them. So they will bully them. What the left always does, what's called the heckler's veto. If you rule against us, we will riot. There will be chaos. Look at look at all the screaming that we're doing on the media. You should listen to us because that if you screaming in the media means screaming on the streets, people showing up at your house, you might just get, might just have somebody try to kill you, which is what the left did to Brett Kavanaugh. Whatever happened to that guy, by the way, you hear, you'd think it'd be headline news all around the country. It's not though. Isn't that funny how the left works? Anyways, folks, Make sure you like and rumble, like and rumble, like and rumble, like and rumble. Smash that little green thumb. Let's see if we can get to 200 before the end of the episode. So listen, I am got to pop smoke out of here pretty quickly. For the first time in a couple of years, I am going to speak at a Lincoln Day dinner here in Western Pennsylvania. It'll be my first local speaking event, sort of getting back into the fight a little bit. Uh, and so I'm going to head over there and speak at the Lincoln Day dinner. But in the meantime, thank you all for being with me. Again, make sure you smash that like button. Lots more to talk about tomorrow. We're going to get into this Hunter Biden stuff, probably headlines from the Hunter Biden stuff and the Biden family crime syndicate that you haven't heard of yet. No surprise there because fake news in this country everywhere. Got to talk about J.D. Vance and I've got to talk about Mitt Romney and I've got to talk about their view of American foreign policy tomorrow as well. But listen, folks, we have an amazing show. Uh, make sure you smash that like button, that little green thumb. Tell your family, tell your friends to subscribe and follow Battleground Live. We hit 10,000 followers. We've been doing the show since what? September, the daily live show. Special thanks to Brock and Wendy Bell for convincing me that I, I could do it. Now we're 10,000 followers. Onward to 11,000. Because of you, Battle Crew, 
because of you. It's a testament to your power. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And thank you all for watching. As always, I will see you tomorrow night right here on Rumble at 5 o'clock. God bless you all. And God bless this amazing country that we call home. Take care.